I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. This is Episode 7, The Darlie Rudier Story. Charlie Rudier is one of just six women sitting on death row in Texas. She was convicted of the brutal murders of her two small children, but recent media attention has called this conviction into question. So is Darlie the monster the prosecution says she is, or is she just another case of a wrongful conviction? Hi, Amy. Hi, Megan. So I'm excited to discuss this case with you today, not just because I love talking all cases with you, but because Darlie Rudier is has come up in the wrongful conviction arena, which is sort of your wheelhouse. Mm-hmm. So what do you know about her? Have you heard of this case? Is this one that's on your radar? Can you tell us? Yeah. You know, most of the wrongful conviction community, at least that I've heard of, is kind of split on this case. Oh, that's very interesting. Yeah. Okay. And to tell you the truth, I'm a little bit split as well. Okay. So I'm interested to hear a deep dive into it to see if that changes my opinion at all. Okay. So you know some of the facts, but not all. Would that exactly. be fair to I say? Exactly. I know surface amount. Yep. Great. All right. Let me get into it then. So as we usually do before we actually get into the case facts, let's talk a little bit about Darlie Rudier's background and who she is. So Darlie Lynn Peck was born in 1970 in Altoona, Pennsylvania to Larry Peck and Darlie Key. And she has one sister, Danelle. But after her parents' divorce, Darlie relocated with her mom and her stepfather to Texas. Her sister and her mother remain her strongest supporters, and I've seen them both doing a lot of media coverage. So Darlie met Darren Rudier in Lubbock, Texas, where Darren was an assistant manager at the restaurant where Darlie's mother worked. And that's kind of how they met. It was a setup by the mom. The story goes something like this. The mom tells it, and I've seen it. She says something like, he came up to her and said, so I hear you have a beautiful daughter. And she was like, indeed, I do have a beautiful daughter. And they met, and they met quite young. I mean, they were teenagers. So these 
they're actually pretty much high school, or they were high school sweethearts. So Darley and Darren married in 1988 and moved to Rowlett, which is near Dallas, Texas. It's more of a quiet family suburb. Darren started an electronics company named Testnet, which made circuit boards, and it was a thriving business. So they started to make money rather quickly in their early 20s, and they started to live a very nice life. So they bought a house, a nicer house than they had been accustomed to. They bought cars. I think they were starting to go on vacations. Darley had some plastic surgery done, which would really come into play later on. So we'll talk about that. And, you know, they started to enjoy their hard work. Did Darley work or he made enough for both nope, of them? No, Darley was a homemaker. But she so, had no kids at that point. She did. Well, no, she did. She oh, had kids sorry. quite yeah, oh, quite young. Okay. So um, they started to make money, you know, early. And Darley was a homemaker. Darley loved to have people over at her house. She uh, had three boys, Devin, six at the time, Damon, five, and an eight-month-old named Drake. And these will all come into play later on. Drake? And when I say at the time... Did you say Drake? I did say Drake. They were ahead of their time. They were. Because that was before Drake. It was. But if you notice the theme, Darley, Darren, Devin, Damon, Drake. Oh, God. So yeah, I think that was I think that was the theme. Okay. So Darley had three boys. She loved to have people over and was described by most people as a doting, fun-loving mother. She was sweet. She was bubbly. By all appearances, Darley and Darren had a happy family life and were doing well until the tragic crime that plagued their family. Let's talk about the crime here. Darley promised her two boys a sleepover in the living room because school was out and so they wanted to do like a slumber party and so she said okay one night and so she and the boys stayed in the living room when you say the boys i'm assuming the two older boys yes sorry she and the two older boys devin and damon six and five at the time stayed in the living room one night while darren and the baby slept upstairs and this was on the evening of june 6th 1996 so darren and the baby are upstairs safe darley's downstairs and Darley said that she woke up to her son, hearing her son Damon saying mommy in a, in a strained voice. And she said that she woke up and she woke up to a struggle. She remembers a struggle with a male. And then she said she saw this intruder basically run through the house towards the kitchen. And then she heard something break like a glass. She says she remembers rushing like to the kitchen, like rushing after him. She was definitely injured at this time. Uh, she says she also remembers rushing after seeing a knife, picking up the knife. So she picks up this knife. And then she says she saw Devin laying upside, sort of upside, you know, faced up. Mm -hmm. And she saw him laying this way in the living room. And he began to, or he didn't begin to scream, rather. She began to scream for her husband, Darren, to come downstairs. She describes this as being very chaotic. There is definitely some confusion about the order of events and I would say Darley, from everything that I've heard, was mostly consistent with her story, but she couldn't remember everything. However, there might be good reason why, mm -hmm. which we'll see. In her version of events, she does not recall being stabbed. However, she recalls a struggle, which will come into play later on. So she also, because she was inconsistent, it's possible she was bleeding and she was injured at the time. So this might have stabbed. She was stabbed, and we'll talk about where and when, but she was definitely stabbed. She was bleeding. She was injured. So it might explain some of the disorientation and why she couldn't get. Well, also shock from the oh, traumatic. 
I think, shocked too. No, no doubt about that. But there was, so there was so much going on that people have said her statements were really inconsistent. I've looked at them, listened to them. I didn't find them as inconsistent as people might say. You know, she, she basically recalls waking up to an intruder, hearing her children chasing, screaming for Darren to come down the stairs. What happens after that? Darren comes downstairs and Darren started CPR on Devin because Devin was actually still alive. Devin was the younger one or the middle kid? Devin was the older child. He was the six-year-old. Oh, sorry. Okay. Okay. So Darren started CPR on Devin, although Darren describes it as sort of like, I think blood was just coming out. It wasn't, it wasn't helping. Darlie called 911 and I've listened to the 911 tape and I encourage everyone to do so or to listen to the 911 call. She sounds absolutely hysterical to me, screaming, my babies have been stabbed, my babies, my babies, get here, I need you to. I think there were some directions, you know, they're trying to keep her calm, although I have to be honest, every time I hear these 911 calls, I think the calming techniques are just, they go like, you need to calm down. You're like, that's the worst thing to say to someone. So I think, so Darlie was hysterical. They did, you know, give her some directions. They did say there's going to be an officer coming by soon. But later on, I heard someone say that Darlie was so calm on the 911 call. And I'm thinking, that's ridiculous. Anyone who hears the call will hear the hysteria in her voice. Well, we both know that you can't judge the way people respond to trauma. Some people actually get really calm. Some people go crazy. Some people black out. Some people get hysterical. You can't judge it. I hear this all the time, Amy. Everyone judges these calls. He was too calm. He was too upset. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. Right. So I'm going to say to our listeners, don't judge people's guilt by 911 calls. It is not a good measure of innocence. Or their affect at all. Really. It's true. (laughs) You know, you cry. If you don't cry, you're cold. If you do cry, you're a faker. I mean, damned if you do. Okay. So Darlie calls 911. Listen to the call for yourselves. Darren was doing CPR on Devin. Damon was lying on his stomach crying in pain. So... Um, he was still alive. I'm not sure if if Darren had, uh, I'm sorry, if Devin had made any noises at this point. But they the D did. names are really just too much. The D names are too much. So um, Damon was definitely still alive. However, both boys would not make it. So both boys would ultimately die from being stabbed to death multiple times. Did they die pretty quickly or did it take a little while to succumb to their wounds? I believe that uh, it was pretty quick. So uh, one of the boys was already deceased Mm -hmm. when paramedics showed up. Uh, Damon was still crying out, but it didn't take long for him to pass. Uh, unfortunately, I know it's it's terrible. It's, this is a terrible case, but I feel I'm covering this too because I feel strongly about it. So mm-hmm. uh, now, what about Darlie? Right? What were her injuries? Well, she had a slash across her throat, mm-hmm. a huge slash if you haven't seen it, and it missed her carotid artery by just something of a millimeter, mm-hmm. which is really close. Now, if it hit her carotid, you, you, she would have been dead. Mm-hmm. She also had bruising. I don't know if you've seen this picture, Amy, but she had bruising on one of her arms. And you know when you say black and blue? No, she had black from her wrist Mm -hmm. all the way up to close to her shoulder. Yeah, I've seen the picture. Completely black, Mm -hmm. though. I've never seen um, black like that before. And and so it was completely black. She also had a cut on her arm that went down to the bone and her bone was sticking out. Mm -hmm. So those were her injuries. I think if people want to see, there is a picture, a very famous picture online. You can look at Darlie laying in a hospital bed. You can see from the picture that she was pretty badly injured, Mm -hmm. though that would be disputed very much at trial. But those were the three injuries that were notably sustained by Darlie Rudier. All right. So after this crime happens and after Darlie's rushed to the hospital and she's laying in recuperation, 
there is obviously an investigation. So let's talk about the investigation and what evidence was found. There was a screen cut in the garage, which would come into play in a bit, and there were bloody footprints inside the house. There was also blood everywhere. The footprints, I'm assuming, did not match Darley? Well, hold that thought. So there was a bloody footprint. Um, There was also, I believe, a bloody fingerprint. There was, uh, so like I said, there was, sorry, there was blood all over the house. Darley said she fought with the intruder, but the police were becoming suspicious of Darley. On the 911 call, she mentioned picking up the knife the intruder held, almost as if she was covering for why they wouldn't find prints on this knife. Or that's the way it was positioned, you know? So, oh, I touched the knife. So you won't find any prints. That's too bad. We can't get prints. That's the way it sounded. But actually, if you listen to the dispatcher, the dispatcher told Darlie not to pick up the knife. And Darlie was just responding, saying, oh, no, no, I touched the knife. Oh, my gosh. It was taken out of context. It was taken out of context. Okay. Mm -hmm. Darlie's blood was found underneath a glass. So remember she said she heard the intruder knock over a glass, like a broken glass Mm -hmm. in the kitchen? So police said if that was the case and she ran in after, her blood should be on top of the glass and not underneath it. Does that prove anything? I don't think so. Alternative explanation? Do you have one? I could think of one. Um, So I'm thinking people were in that crime scene. Yeah, people move the glass. The glass moved. <laughs> blood, yeah. w- blood was everywhere. I don't think that's. So I'm much. just curious, and sorry if we're going to get to this, but at what point did she become a suspect? Quickly, like while she's laying in her hospital bed. Oh there, yeah, they yeah. start because they had no one else, so they just start tunnel vision. That's exactly what happens mm-hmm. when you have no one else. You know, when you and when you have a crime of violence like this one, people obviously want someone right away. Yep. And, and Darlie's alive, and her children are dead. So they give this 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 blood on top of the glass. I think this is a weak piece mm-hmm. of evidence. Prosecutors say the cut screen had dust that was undisturbed. We've heard this in other cases before. I've heard this in a number of cases. What it means when they're saying that dust is undisturbed is that nobody passed in or out of the window because the dust wouldn't be there, or mm-hmm. it would be in a zigzag it's pattern. Staged crime scene. So they're saying if it's, uh, yes, if, if there's a cut in the window, but the dust is still there, then nothing actually happened. But you have to see the demonstration that Darren Rudier did to understand that this might have been totally understandable. So Darren is a supporter of his wife's innocence? So Darren Rudier is, and we're going to get to him okay. in a bit. All right. He is a supporter of Darley. Yes, okay. I can tell you that. Right they're now. still together i will get to their status okay. Okay. i love how you're jumping the gun but sorry. i'll get to their status but what he did was a demonstration that was videoed and you could see that the window that they're referring to it was low to the ground and I, when i say low to the ground i mean a foot from the ground and it was huge like a tremendous oversized window so darren shows everyone he steps right in right over the ledge and steps right out. It's almost like walking through a door. Meaning like you could do it without disturbing the dust. You could absolutely do it without Got disturbing it. the dust. And he was, so he wanted to show people, okay, this window that you're talking about with the undisturbed dust, it's not a normal window where mm-hmm. someone's hoisting themselves through there. Okay, fine. So you have the window, you have undisturbed dust. Prosecutors also noted that they found a bread knife in the kitchen. And when it was examined, they found that fiberglass rods were on the knife and a rubbery compound which was found on the screen. So basically the prosecutors are saying that she used the bread knife to cut the screen from the inside. And that's why you found these fibers from the screen on the bread knife. Could they be? Ex- can those fibers be explained in any other way? Well, here's where cross-contamination might come in, okay? If they dusted both the screen and the window and the knife, it's really possible that the fingerprint person cross-contaminated this evidence. Mm-hmm. 
And we certainly know that this happens and has happened. But the problem is the defense didn't have anyone to refute this very damning. Did she have a private defense attorney or a public She defendant? did. And we're going to get to who her attorney was in a minute, too, because you may actually. It wasn't actually... Joe Tacopino, was it? No. <laughs> <laughs> Good one, Amy. Uh, for anyone who listens direct appeal and then has listened to subsequent cases, Joe Tacopino seems to come up. But no, it was not Joe Tacopino. But so, uh, you know, they, they could have had an expert to refute this very damning piece of evidence, but they did not. In fact, they didn't really have any forensics experts, which would prove to be a big mistake. This is also, though, 1996 and 1997. So it's kind of pre all of the strong forensics mm -hmm. experts that we know now. So they also found a bloody fingerprint, but it did not match Darlie or anyone else in the home. And so this is going to become important later on to her defense. How does the prosecution explain that? They don't. They just conveniently ignore it. It's it's not a, a, a it's not a value. Okay. It's not an evidentiary <laughs> value, as we would say. So shortly after Darren and Darley were brought in again for questioning, Darley was arrested for two counts of murder. But Darley and Darren were shocked. The way they both describe it in later accounts, they had no idea they were suspects or Darley was. Darren was initially, as I understand, considered somewhat of a suspect, but ruled out pretty quickly mm -hmm. because he was, you know, safely upstairs with the baby. So it was really Darley that they honed in on. And it was Darley who was arrested for two counts of murder. And the problem also is that this was about 1996. The media had compared her to a very famous case that had just happened about two years before in Texas. I'm not sure if you recall Susan Smith. Oh, of course. Yeah. So Susan Smith was the mom who had drowned her two sons in mm -hmm. the lake and, you know, claimed that there was some, some not an intruder, but yeah. someone took her kids and it was a stranger abduction. And I think Susan had confessed within something of nine days. But so this is kind of still fresh on the people's mm -hmm. mind. You have Susan Smith and now you've got Darlie Rudier. You've got women, you know, yeah. killing their children left and right. So this is how this was sort of going down. So Darlie's arrested. She was even, I think, taken to, there's like a photograph and a video of her. I think she was taken to like a psych ward initially. Because she was probably going crazy, right? I, I, I don't remember. I, I won't say I know exactly why, but I think she was taken there. And unfortunately, they put her in like this long white gown. And that's the thing they paraded her out in, in front of like the press. She was in a long white gown that looked like a pajama thing. Mm, it was weird. it was weird. And I thought it was unfortunate. And I thought it was embarrassing. And I almost felt like it was done to shame her mm -hmm. and she was crying and you know the press had asked her if she had anything to say and the only thing she said was i did not kill my children i'm innocent darley's trial began on january 6th 1997 which is not a lot of time it was actually maybe about six months after That's really quick way too quick for a murder trial and in one of the documentaries i watched on this and i'll, I'll reference our sources later but one of them the attorney said, like, this was too quick. And and it is. You know, we want speedy trial. But in a case, especially when you're on for murder, you need more time to prep. Well, I think, the prosecution probably thought it was a slam dunk. Exactly. Mm -hmm. I think the probably average time to prep for a murder trial when you have especially a big murder trial is two and a half to three years. Mm -hmm. Would you say that's about right, Amy? Yeah, but you also have to keep in mind that a lot of times people are detained pre-trial. So if you're innocent, that's a long time to wait. It is a long time to wait. It's usually the defense so that requests that much yeah. time. I think, you know, prosecution will also request time for mm -hmm. other reasons, but the defense is entitled to speedy. But if they want to get it right, it's of also, yeah. 
you have to balance it. Anyway, uh, regardless, Darley's trial began on January 6, 1997, but it would be held in Kerrville and not in Dallas. Change of venue? Yes. So this is obviously a huge case. So they were going for a change of venue mm-hmm. immediately. How like, far away was that town? I mean, because I would imagine that it was a big case in most of the state. It was, but so that's why, here's the thing, that's why that it they thought it would go to Dallas because Dallas is yeah. the big city. So that, that, that would have been far enough away and also big enough. And Dallas has a population of something like 1.3 or 1.4 million. And a lot of successful families, a lot of urban, a lot of mix, right? Mm-hmm. But it went to Kerrville, which is su- more Southern, and it was very small, population of 25,000. So mm-hmm. now we have a small conservative mm-hmm. jurisdiction. This was not the desired jurisdiction by the defense. They wanted Dallas for many obvious mm-hmm. reasons. And to be frank, if it had been Dallas, we probably would have been looking at somewhat of a different outcome here. Mm-hmm. So, okay, her trial commences. One of the most damning pieces of evidence is is a video of Darley at the cemetery about a week after the murder. Have you heard of this? It's, it's called balloons or something? Or? Yes, the silly string balloon oh, yes. video. Okay, so what happened was, well, the whole family, this is a week after the murder. The whole family was actually there to celebrate what would have been Devin's seventh birthday mm. and for a memorial. Here's where 20 seconds of one person's life and decisions can change everything. Darley was filmed at one point spraying confetti on the graves and saying, we love you to the boys and saying happy birthday. And she was smiling in the Mm -hmm. video. This was before she was a suspect? She was already a suspect then. But before trial? She was out on bail? Oh, yeah. No, no, no. This was before trial. Okay. Yeah, this was before trial. So the video would really change the tides for Darley Rudier. It was... One moment in the whole day, however, that was used against her. So what most people didn't hear and what the jury or jury didn't see or hear, and they said later they wish they had, was there was a whole day. Darley and her family were crying most of the day. They were over the graves. You know, they were, I mean, it was a mm-hmm. really upsetting day. But for mo- one moment, and it's the way her family, it's either her mother or her sister tells it. She said, let's make this about Devin. And you know how much he would loved Silly String and mm-hmm. how fun he was. Let's, let's do one sweet thing for Devin. You know, it's interesting because Darren Rudier always says, you know, the only difference between Darley and me is that I wasn't holding the silly string. Mm-hmm. I was holding, you know, maybe he was holding the yeah. baby. So Darley is caught in this, you know, 15 to 20 second video that makes it look they like... They played it at trial. Oh, they sure did. Yeah. They played this at trial. And, you know, the jurors were quite offended by the video, as they said later on in subsequent interviews. And the lead prosecutor, Greg Davis, said it was clearly not the behavior of a grieving mother. You know, that's that's what jurors said mm-hmm. as well. Like, this is not a grieving mother. She's smiling. She's laughing. Uh, the prosecutor, I believe Greg Davis, actually said something that was so damning in the opening or closing. She's literally dancing on their graves. Mm, God. It was, you know, it was not good. Let's put it this way. I don't way. see how that speaks to her guilt or innocence. I really don't. I don't think it does either. But Darley's lawyer, Doug Mulder, also had somewhat of an ace in his po- uh, pocket. Have you ever heard of Doug Mulder? He was a pretty famed attorney in Texas as well. So he was a prosecutor first and then a defense attorney, which we know a lot of prosecutors will go over to the defense later. But um, Doug Mulder was the prosecutor of the Errol Morris case. Yep. You've seen Thin Blue Line. Yep, absolutely. So Doug Mulder was that prosecutor and he handled some other very big cases in his capacity as a defense attorney. He actually recently died something like last year. Uh, I heard an interview with his son. So that's why I bring that up. So 
Doug Mulder was, he had a good reputation. He was, you know, well-known and probably, or maybe they say a little cocky Mm -hmm. as well. He thought like it was obvious that there were a lot of kinks in the case. So Doug Mulder had a surprise when he interviewed Detective Patterson about the memorial service. Mm -hmm. Detective Patterson, uh, he had been one of the people to be surveilling Darley, gets on the stand. And when Doug Mulder asks him about this memorial service and his filming and and audio and whatnot. Oh, he was the one that filmed the silly string. He was part of a, a, a team of detectives, but I think he was the lead right then. Okay. So um, they didn't anticipate this, but Detective Patterson, when asked about it, took the Fifth Amendment. Do you know, I mean, we know what taking the Fifth means. The yeah, Fifth he means... didn't answer, right? right? Right, but the idea here is that people, criminal defendants take the Fifth when they yeah. don't want to answer, when it's possible they could implicate themselves in a crime. Yeah. So why do we have a detective on this case, which is highly unusual, taking the fifth about his role in a surveillance. Okay, so uh, what happened was they got another detective on the stand and you have another detective take the fifth. Okay, When they were questioned about their surveillance? Yes, so what's going on? The reason, police surveilled the memorial by placing recording equipment on the grave site. And you're not allowed to do that. And listening to the recordings. So the question is, is this illegal? Yes, this is considered a real invasion of privacy. So they weren't just surveilling them, watching them. They put recording on the ki- on the on the actual graves. Yeah. This is considered an invasion of privacy. Also, you know, as we said before, they the jury didn't get to see or hear the video where Darley was crying over her son's graves, which would prove to be pretty detrimental as well. Mm-hmm. Darlie Rudier decided to testify at her trial. She wanted to testify, and I'm not sure what Doug Mulder, I don't recall what he said, just that, you know, he thought she'd come across it as an impassioned mom. Now, we both know for various reasons, it's not always a good idea to put someone on the stand. And in Darlie's case, it did not work out very well for her. So she came across, they said, as defensive and argumentative and Mostly, she did not make a great witness, and she did not look at the jury, which is now a whole thing. You're supposed to look at the jury now. Like, if you saw the Jody Arias case, she stares at the jury. Mm-hmm. When you look away, they think it's, you know, damning. You know, it's interesting. She was argumentative and defensive. Well, that's, of course, what you're going to be when you're on trial for murder and you're claiming that you're innocent. Yeah. Are you going to be, you know, but... I mean, if she wasn't like that, they'd say, why wasn't she more defensive? She was, again, damned if you do, yeah. damned if you don't. But, they, you know, the, the lead prosecutor baited her well and made her seem like a belligerent witness and just didn't come across well. At the end of trial, lead prosecutor Greg Davis, in his closing statement, said the last thing Darley Rudier's kids saw was their mother stabbing them to death. Oh. And Darley interjects and called him a liar during his closing. So she literally said, liar. And everyone was like, what? I mean, I have to say, this is probably what I would have done as well. If I'm sitting there listening to someone say that about me, Mm -hmm. I would have screamed liar as well. Mm -hmm. To me, that they said it was shocking and it made her look bad. I thought that that made her look innocent. So what happens when the jurors go to deliberate? They have, you know, they have some mixed evidence here. But do you know they requested to see one piece of evidence over the video? The video. They requested to see the video, the gravesite video, seven times while deliberating. And actually, I heard it referenced as nine times in another one. Did the defense uh, suggest an alternate theory? Yes, they did. We'll get to that. Oh, okay. They suggested exactly what Darley said. There was clearly an intruder. We have a, a fingerprint that doesn't belong to her. We have. You know, what they really tried to present, too, was how injured Darley was. I think the most difficult thing is who would want these children dead? 
That's well. That's what's difficult for the for what, the jury. What would be the motive here for so, anyone? All right. So we're going to get to that in a, in a minute or two. I'm not sure that I can answer that fully for you, but I could at least present some possible mm-hmm. alternative theories. So, but also the I think the unfortunate thing here, though, as well, is that the gravesite video was the most mm-hmm. heavily, and the juries. Uh, I heard juror members speak to it afterwards. Mm-hmm. It weighed on them the most. Okay. So the jurors deliberated and. Not surprisingly, I guess, Darley was found guilty on both murders and sentenced to death on February 4th, 1997. I think Doug Mulder was very surprised. He was, he thought they had certainly established reasonable doubt. I think a lot of people were surprised. Greg Davis and the prosecution had, they remained steadfast. They believe Darley was responsible for this crime. And they asserted at trial that those wounds that Darley had were superficial. They said, this is a woman. They didn't look superficial if you look at those pictures. I don't think they look superficial at all. But they said, this is a woman who clearly did this to herself. She could have wanted to kill herself if you, I mean, I guess you could argue that. I mean, yes. I mean, we were talking about a murder-suicide, very rare. Mm-hmm. I don't see that as being supported here. Also, we've definitely seen people fake injuries, but this was not a superficial injury. It, it was, was not. It was incorrect to call the gash on her throat superficial given how close she came to the carotid artery. I also think if you want to inflict superficial wounds, I've seen it done before. People usually go for a shot, even a gunshot, sure, or a knife, but to the arms, to the legs, to a part of the abdomen uh, where you're not, not piercing. Neck, yeah. We're talking again about slashing her own throat across the throat and into the That's carotid. why I said if she did it, she wanted to kill herself, I think. I don't think you could make the argument that she did it to make a superficial wound. No, I don't think you can make that argument either. Uh, again, prosecution said this was just her covering it up. And look, you know, they said, look, she lived and the kids died. But also we could say, well, because she struggled. She was an adult. The yeah. kids were easy. Obviously, the kids are easier yeah, prey. They're not fighting yeah. back. They're small. They're small children. Mm-hmm. So Darley remembers struggling. So Darley was convicted. What would have been some, I just want to talk about a couple of things, some critical evidence for the defense, even though it, didn't win them the case and it didn't acquit Darlie Rudier. It would come up, it will come up later. And I think it's important that we cover this. One of the critical pieces of evidence was a male's athletic sock was found in the alley behind her house, but a couple of doors down. Mm. I don't remember how many yards it was, maybe something like 75 mm. yards away. So it was, it had a small blood stain on it from both boys. And it was found near a drain behind the house. I'm assuming they checked the drain for other evidence. They did. But it it clear if Darlie is the one who did this, does this mean that somewhere in the middle of this, she took a sock, ran outside in her T-shirt, she was still in her T-shirt and yeah. bloodied, and threw a sock in the alley to give the impression that there was some type but of But on intruder? the other hand, why would an intruder take a kid's sock with him? It might have been something that was on him that um, he got. I didn't say that it was actually. Oh, I'm sorry. You said it was a male sock. It's a male oh, sock. Gotcha. Okay. So imagine this. An intruder realizes he's got blood on him running and tries to throw the sock in the drain while running. Yeah. Okay. I mean, mm-hmm. that one looks more like, to me, that supports much yeah. stronger supportive yeah. evidence for an intruder than Darlie Rudier running down yes. the block, you know, after in the mm-hmm. middle of this crime. So how would the sock get there? Again, I think that would support That was brought up at trial, but it just obviously fell flat. The prosecution said that Darlie placed the sock there to make it appear as if an intruder did this to her sons, but it doesn't seem likely that Darlie would have been able to do that. Because then there'd be her blood on the doorknobs, and how would she get out of the house, right? It doesn't make sense. No, it just doesn't make sense at all. 
Um, there was also a bloody fingerprint, as I mentioned before, found at the scene, which did not match Darley or anyone else in the home. So what was the explanation for this? It wasn't really addressed. I think the defense used it to say, obviously, there was an intruder, yeah. ignored by the prosecution mostly. On appeal, did they try to run that fingerprint? Ah, here we go. Oh. So Amy's jumping ahead. She's Sorry. like, okay. So, okay, Darlie is convicted. So let's talk now about the aftermath and the appeals and what's going on today. Also, I want to mention, she's been on death row for over 20 years. That's correct. That's she's been very, on death row for 22 years. I mean, people years. are on death row for a long time, but that's on the high end. It's usually around a decade, maybe a decade and a half. It's on the very high yeah. end. And we'll talk about what we think about this and how and how and, and why, why people she get, is, right, yeah. right, exactly. So uh, Darlie's husband, Darren, has always supported her innocence. And I mean, he never wavered. He was, uh, he's been vocal. He was destroyed. He was devastated. And the baby who was a baby, now an adult is. Yes. So let's talk about, I'll get Sorry. to that as well. Stop stealing my thunder, Sorry. Amy. But no, I understand. So Darren was extremely supportive in the beginning. He's still supportive. And if you watch interviews, he's done some recently. He has said, I absolutely, there is not one chance on earth that Darlie did this, but they did divorce eventually in 2011 and Darren remarried. I don't know anything mm -hmm. about his second marriage. His, I mean, they stayed together. They stayed married for almost 15 years. I mean, years. he still supports her. I understand that at some point. He you still need to does. Move on, probably. They both discussed know. it I mean, without discussing it in detail. They both said it was a mutual decision, obviously, based on the time and the distance. Yeah. And I'm sure that she wanted him to move on with his life at yeah. some point. So Darren remarried. His youngest son, Drake, visits Darlie and has a relationship that's, with her that's and really is nice. also supportive of her. Unfortunately, their relationship, because it's death row, is through a glass window, oh. which is a little sad. Um, if she's innocent, that's sad. It, it yes. It's probably sad for him regardless. Oh, for him, for, absolutely, regardless. Drake was, I read something that Drake was diagnosed with leukemia a while back, oh. but his prognosis was good. All right. It was good, and I believe he is okay now. So what happened, so she does have a relationship with Drake and she does have an amicable relationship with Darren who, uh, who she divorced in 2011. So what happened with her case? The state affirmed her conviction on direct appeal, but the appellate court granted Darley's team the ability to run DNA tests in 2008. Further testing again, so they ordered new testing in 2014 and another round just last year in 2018. And the requests for these DNA tests to be run were supported by both the prosecution and the defense. Oh, that's nice. I think it's a different prosecutor. But as of 2019, Darlie waits as her DNA analyses are run. And I still... So I'm assuming from the earlier analyses, they got nothing. We're just hoping something may have come out of last year. So that's interesting because I was thinking, kept looking for the same thing. Like, what about 2008? I mean, you know, obviously, I don't know if... You, well, Amy knows this, but other people don't know. DNA testing, even when it's ordered, sometimes can take up to eight, nine, ten years to actually do. Well, because there's a backlog. There's a backlog, yeah. but there's also um, opposition by the state. Um, that wasn't mm -hmm. the case here. So I don't believe that they were able to ascertain much information from the 2008, but they've ordered new DNA testing. And the new DNA testing that they're going to run is going to focus on blood, mm -hmm. fingerprints, and there was something else. The new DNA testing is going to focus on blood, fingerprints, and other items, you know, obviously containing DNA. So it's... I mean, that's promising. So that's why she hasn't been executed, because she keeps getting the stays of execution through the appeals. So she keeps yeah. getting stays, uh -huh. yeah. And the appellate court keeps awarding her. Uh, interestingly, they keep expanding the realm of testing. And again, it's supported by the, D the yeah. DA and the prosecution. But this is 22 years. And Amy, that's 11 years after the first round. 
So I was gonna say, can you explain why it would you know be that long? But the the state usually stalls, and they might have stalled on the first round. I think they did on DNA testing. The mm-hmm. state will stall. There will be several rounds of motions back mm-hmm. and forth. There will be other procedures, and then there's you know the DNA backlog. Who's going to do it? Who's going to take? Uh, which independent lab is going to do it? Which tests are going to be run? For yeah. several reasons, it, it takes years. And to I mean, run Texas DNA. definitely is one of the states that has the largest backlog too. So that's absolutely if true. If this was going on in a different state, it might not take so long. Absolutely true. On another positive note for Darlie, the Innocence Project has joined forces with her team, and it seems there's definite excitement in the air. You know, over this, I mean, we're talking about the original Innocence Project, mm-hmm. Barry Sheck, New York. Mm-hmm. And you know that if they're backing her, that this is, you know, she's got some real steam now. Yep. But you also know that once the Innocence Project backs people, I mean, it's usually good, mm-hmm. you know, right? I mean, you could talk about that. Yeah. Don't they have strong reason to believe in the innocence as well? Yeah, I don't think they take on cases unless they have a strong belief in one's innocence. But that doesn't mean, of course, that every case they take on comes Ab- out in that favor. Absolutely not. I guess they v- do think, though, there's going to be a lot of information to be gained from the DNA testing. Yep. Regardless, 22 years later, Darlie Rudier remains on death row, as we said before, along with six other women in Texas. So that's where her case is at. Possible alternate theories, and these aren't really alternate theories, but other information that might help. A neighbor of Darlie Rudier's and Darren Rudier's reported a suspicious black car in the neighborhood a week before the murder, and the neighbor claims that she saw the person watching the Rudier's home. She says she recognized it because they were a tight-knit community, Mm -hmm. and she didn't know this. And then that same neighbor reported seeing that same car there the day of the murder. And the police ignored this report because they had their suspect. She yeah. said, I saw this car a week there. I, it looked like basically when she said watching the home, almost like casing it, and then saw the same car there the day of the murder. It's just hard to wrap your head around what the motive would be because there was no sexual assault. No. There was nothing taken. No. I'm, I'm assuming the defense tried to see if they had any enemies, if there were any business issues going on. They did. They looked into Darren's business and there were some uh, mentions of some possible problems mm-hmm. with Darren's business and some, not I don't want to say enemies, yeah. but some animosity that he might have had. They also suggested that Darren was going to commit fraud at one point. And apparently, because they're, one of the things I should say is that while they were living a good life, they were living way beyond their means. Mm-hmm. And the prosecution suggested that they were living too far behind, beyond their means and Darren was going to commit some fraud. And Darren actually, I believe, signed a petition, signed something for the court saying that he did commit a fraud. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure that it was true, though. I think he did it just to help Darley. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the, the motives the prosecution said was that Darlie was it was everything was getting to be too expensive and so she killed the kids for the life insurance the kids had five thousand dollar life insurance policies that makes no sense also you said before something about her plastic surgery would come back all right I'm glad you brought that up so the prosecution could not find a motive because to be honest people thought Darlie was a great mom yeah and she loved being a mom Mm -hmm. and all the evidence if you look at the videos and everything I'm sure they were trying hard to find some dirt on they were trying trying hard so what they said was Darlie had liked to be the center of attention and she had you know done her hair and gotten plastic surgery she gotten breast enhancement mm-hmm. and you know their lifestyle had become lavish and the kids were cutting into her expensive lifestyle and so and also cutting into her so penis. why wouldn't she kill the baby then why kill all their right kids? and so one of the other the counterpoints is okay so you killed the two kids but not your 
not yeah. your husband, who, by the way, would be the golden goose with the insurance yeah. money, too. And, you know, so that, that makes motive no didn't make sense. However, the jury, they didn't like it. They didn't like it. So I heard a juror, I saw an interview with a juror afterwards, and I was shocked to hear her talk about how she said something like, I didn't like that she had breast surgery. I would never do that. Who would do that? So they were clearly judging her for her appearance and the fact that she had fake breasts. That came into play. And that, that, I mean, they essentially put that forth as a motive, which was very weak. So I agree, Amy, right? Mm -hmm. We don't know. Was it a possible burglary gone wrong? Was it supposed to be a possible attack, let's say, on maybe even Darren? Or Darlie, and all of a sudden someone walks in, and holy shit, Darlie's in there with two children. Yep, it could have been Somebody more, wakes yeah. up, they freak out, they mm-hmm. panic, and they just start stabbing. Got to yeah. get through here, got to get out of here before the husband wakes yeah. up. You know, mm-hmm. the motive we may not know, but certainly the motive that was given by the prosecution that Darlie was a selfish, self-centered, materialistic woman who didn't want to compete with her children's attention was weak. And did the, 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 the prosecution have witnesses that were assassinating her character, or not really? It, no. It was really hard to find people to talk bad about her. I don't recall that yeah. being a center of mm-hmm. it at, as, at, you know, I've read one or two things that said, you know, Darlie was actually more selfish than you realize, or mm-hmm. Darlie was more spoiled, or, you know, but nothing, nothing at all pointing to her being a bad mom. And I've seen all the videos mm-hmm. and how sweet she was with her kids, and I don't believe it, to be honest. So at this point in the show, I know that we don't have, we don't have all of the information, but I'm going to say for me, the reason I covered this case is because I think this is such a clear case of wrongful conviction. I think the evidence used was used improperly. I think the defense dropped the ball. They didn't defend her. And I think there's a reason why every podcast and a lot of documentary, a lot of people are coming to her aid, the Innocence Project. I hope that other podcasters will cover this. And, you know, again, this is a death row case. So a lot of the cases we cover are life, but now we're talking mm-hmm. about death. Mm-hmm. Any opinions on the end where we're at here, Amy, from you? I think at the very least, a jury should have never found her guilty. How did they meet the burden of proof in this case? I mean, we see that all the time, though. So, you know, it sounds like the jury judged her pretty quickly. It was, like we said, character assassination and... Do you hear yes. evidence? So I, I was I would assume at this point you can't decide for yet whether it's a wrongful conviction. I know you're probably looking. I think it, it lean. I think it would lean more towards that. But at the very least, no way is there, and the burden of proof is definitely not met. Yeah, I don't think so either. And I think had that video not come into play, we would be talking. If that it's it's interesting. We always talk about the one or two small things that could change. Mm-hmm. If that video didn't come into play, and or if she was tried in Dallas. I or think, if she didn't have breast implants even, who knows, right? right? Who knows like what really I think we would talk people. be talking about a very different outcome. Unfortunately, right now, Darlie is still on death row, but I am really looking forward to seeing what the Innocence Project will do. And mm-hmm. we really look forward to the results of the updated DNA tests. Yes. That is it for today. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening. And we'll see you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Our music is composed by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, you can get access to ad-free episodes, exclusive AMAs, and other bonus content for a small monthly contribution through Patreon. To find out more, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime.
sources for today's episode came from CNN, Injustice Watch, Dallas Morning News, and the ABC documentary, Last Defense. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.